Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging SoonerCon. The longest-running pop culture con in Oklahoma has a new look, a new mascot, and a fantastic guest list. Join us in Norman, Oklahoma, June 30th through July 2nd, 2023, and meet celebrities such as Billy West, John Scalzi, Erica Harlicker, and John Swayze. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I spend a lot of time on this show talking about fandom, about comics, about games, movies, the things that we typically associate with sci-fi or fantasy. But I also really love travel, and in my mind, seeing the world is almost the same thing because we use fantasy and fiction to explore our minds. We should use travel to explore our planet. It's all about seeking new adventures wherever you can find them. Today's guest is a master of both. I'd like to start off with Kinsey Burke. On tap today, we have Kinsey Burke. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing excellent. How are you? I'm great. (laughs) Now, my audience is mostly going to know you from your work on the Metal Jesus Rocks channel, Mm -hmm. but you've got a lot of fun stuff going on on your own. You've got a great (laughs) video blog on YouTube detailing your your tour of Japan, and you've got a cool gig working with a really fun indie development studio. Mm -hmm. So the reason I, I wanted to reach out to you was... I. I talk to a lot of people who are really into fandom, but mm. to take the next step of saying, hey, I like this thing so much, I'm going to move across the planet. Yeah. I really <laughs> wanted to see how that came about. Right? It's kind of a leap. Like, I have loved Japan my whole life. Like, like a lot of kids my age, when I was in high school, I took Japanese and I was like in the anime club and I was like a huge weeb. <laughs> So it kind of started there. And my grandfather actually flew for Japan Airlines. So he used to give me like gifts and stuff from Japan all the time growing up. So I think it was like instilled early. And then I like got really into anime and video games, of course, and collecting and everything kind of snowballed. And I like I visited Japan a few times on vacation and just loved it. But the most random part is, is I, I kind of thought moving there was like not a possibility. So I didn't really try that hard, mm-hmm. but like I, I met Mark Luntz, who's our biz dev director at Shuhai Labs. And I met him on Twitter and we started talking. And then like, I was talking about looking for a full-time role in the games industry. Cause at the time I was working freelance with Devolver and he was like, oh, well, if you're looking for a full-time role and you already like Japan, have you thought about moving here kind of <laughs> and like it's weird that that's how it happened but it is and I interviewed for the position and I got it and here we are <laughs> and, and see it's interesting to me because most people I know who really got into Japan got into it first because they got into games and anime and they didn't yeah. necessarily get into Japan first you're one of the few people I've ever spoken to who has said the opposite mm, yeah <laughs> Like, I think it was just, like, instilled at an early age from my grandparents bringing me gifts. Like, Mm -hmm. they gave me a kimono when I was, like, maybe 10. Okay. And I was, like, and of course, like, I didn't understand much, like, about it. I was, like, whoa, it's so cool. And, like, they gave me all, like, the Japan Airlines merch. So, (laughs) 
from there, I just I got into, and I don't even think I bridged the gap too much to be like, oh, I love Japan. Let me look into anime and video games. Like, I think it all just kind of happened organically on its own. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, looking through your, your history on YouTube, you're one of the people, you know, like a lot of retro gamers, you do the collection or you did the mm-hmm. collection. The collection yeah. was a huge part of, you know, because you go to back to find the stuff you couldn't get before you amass you know, your Xbox 360 controllers for one thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and then you move to a country that doesn't have a whole lot of free space. Yeah. How does I that actually, happen? I actually sold like 80% of my collection to move here because I owned so many things. There's no way like I was going to move it all. And mm-hmm. there's no way that I wanted to trust it in like a storage unit where I couldn't get to it if something happened. Mm-hmm. So I sold 80% of it. My most valuable things that I really wanted to keep. It's only like three tubs and it's at my parents' house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I brought a few things with me. I brought my like like current systems that I'm playing right now. I brought all the mini systems. And then I brought the collections that I knew I could complete in Japan. Okay. So, <laughs> which also felt kind of strange because that was a lot of games I bought in Japan on previous trips. And then I brought, paid to bring them back. <laughs> and for anybody who doesn't really follow retro gaming, there is a huge especially for anything pre-1995, there is a whole different flavor to some systems if you get the Japanese, like Saturn being a really big one. NES, yeah. not, uh, yeah. Yeah, like the selection is completely different over here and it's so much fun to game hunt. Although the weirdest feeling that I've been getting, I don't know if anyone else has had, like if you downsize, mm-hmm. like a massive downsize, it's kind of hard to start accumulating stuff again because how annoying it is to downsize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> does that make sense? Like It does make I a lot of sense. Yeah, like I haven't been buying nearly as much stuff as I thought I would. I thought I would go crazy. Like on every trip here, I would always bring an empty suitcase to just fill with games to bring back. But now I'm like much more selective with what I buy just because downsizing is such a pain. <laughs> okay, let, let me ask, when specifically did you start downsizing? What year? Uh, it was about when I got the job at Chuhai Lab. And oh, and then for those of you that don't know, I am a producer at Chuhai Lab. And that's how that's that's the job I moved to Japan for. (laughs) And I started downsizing when I got the job. And after my like, whatever month probationary period that I knew I was gonna keep the job. (laughs) And once I knew I was moving to Japan, I was like looking around my game room in Seattle and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I got to do something. Well, it's just... And like being COVID, like I would have just gone to conventions and sold everything because that's way easier, but there was no conventions. Sure. So I had to like sell it piece by piece and online selling, I kind of hate because it's like a lot of work. And so it, it, yeah, it was rough. <laughs> okay, but see, knowing happened during COVID makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense because post, or at least around five years ago, that's suddenly when we have all the flashcards, all the, the CD loader mods. Mm-hmm. There are so many ways to play old games on the original hardware that mm-hmm. we didn't have even five years ago. Right, yeah. The need to have the big shelf full of stuff suddenly becomes a lot less 
and that wasn't the case for most of our collecting life. Yeah, definitely. And I was kind of surprised too, because like when all those things came out, part of me expected prices to maybe go down on retro mm -hmm. stuff, but if anything, they went up, especially during COVID. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like, I think, I think it's just for two different people. Like the people who will play either on emulators or flashcards to play on the original hardware is different from the people who want to buy it all and have mm -hmm. all the original carts and discs and everything. Some of it comes down to, and I don't want to paint anybody with a broad brush. That's <laughs> not my goal here. But really, when you play the game, are you really looking to get the same experience you would have had way back in the day? Are you looking to experience something new? Or do you just like to have widgets? Right? Because there <laughs> is a part of me that when I had my big collection, like, did I play all of those games all the time? Of course not, you know, mm -hmm. no. <laughs> but it was really great to look at. <laughs> and when you work in a, you know, at a con or at a store or, you know, you have people sending you stuff, you have people selling you stuff. It's you, so many things pass through your hands. It's like, wow, I never thought I'd hold one of these. Yeah, definitely. And like, I had that happen so many times, especially because I, like before I worked in the games industry, I worked at a video game store. Mm -hmm. and I did that for years and years and years so I saw all kinds of things pass through and then that's even more hard because I'm the first person to see it come in the store and then I'm like well obviously I'm putting this on hold for myself I'm gonna buy it mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's accumulated so much <laughs> and then you start to realize and maybe stop me if I'm wrong stop me if I'm completely off base here but you know I did look the cons for many many years and I had mm -hmm. kind of this revelation about two three years in that you're going to get to a point where you realize those once in a lifetime purchases are not really once in a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, with very few exceptions, but yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so you realize if you get that rare game in your hand and maybe you can't afford it, maybe you're not sure you want it, if you give it another six months, you'll have another shot. Yeah, yep. And, and I think there's you. only been like a few items that I was like, okay, this is special. I might not see this again. Mm -hmm. And that's usually more like prototypes or like things that are like really numbered. Like when I bought the like live turns five Xbox 360 controller, mm -hmm. it was like the second opportunity I had in my whole life to buy one. And I was just like, well, crap. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a gimme for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but looking at your shopping in Japan now, the shopping that you do let yourself do, Mm -hmm. what's it like because back in the 90s it was always like that was the 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 golden palace of places you could go to buy retro games and I hear that's not really the case anymore yeah the prices have definitely started to go up here as well because it used to be like oh like just get the import version it's like monumentally cheaper and it's sort of it's the case for some games but overall everything has gone up a lot but you can still find really good deals here because like it depends on where you go. Granted, things, places like Super Potato, it's going to have like the best selection. And that's kind of like the most famous retro game shop in Japan, for those of you who don't know. Uh, and it's amazing. Uh, Pink Gorilla, when it was Pink Godzilla, was originally modeled after because the old owner like went to Japan, saw Super Potato and was like, that's amazing. I'm going to do it in Seattle. <laughs> 
So like, it's a really famous retro game store and it's awesome. And don't let people tell you it's not worth a visit because their selection is incredible, but so are their prices. They're kind of high. Sure. <laughs> but well, you can find a lot of stuff still, like even like Hard Offs, which is like a hilariously named kind of thrift store. Uh, some of those can have excellent selections. And especially if you look in the like junk section, which that usually just means untested. It doesn't mean it's broken necessarily. It could mm -hmm. be broken, but <laughs> so you can, there's still good deals out there, especially if you get out of the city. Like I remember reports that made it sound like you could get Jap Japanese only virtual boy games on every Kmart. They were mm. basically in 7-Eleven. Yeah. And I'm, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. That's not quite the case anymore, but like, it's still, I think a lot easier to find good deals here than in the U.S. Yeah, fair enough. I would hope so because I still have my hopes up. Yeah, yeah. There's still some excellent shopping to do. And especially like if you're a collector, you probably have like a bin of cords at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like you can buy like really cheap like Super Famicoms and stuff that just don't have cords or controllers or anything. And even though some of those are like, you know, a thousand yen. 500 yen in some cases so five ten dollars so there's still like deals to be had and i'm thinking and this is just me here pardon me if i'm out of line but it's like if you can afford to fly to japan and spend a week not the cheapest country in the world to exist yeah <laughs> you can pay a couple extra yen for a video game deal that, that's just my perspective here yeah, you don't take the definitely. trip halfway across the world to be pinching pennies right right <laughs> And Japan, you can travel like relatively cheaply once you're here. Mm -hmm. So you'll have the budget for games. <laughs> but Chuhai Labs, I like mm -hmm. what they do. I'm, I'm looking over it. I haven't played anything they've done because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to, to their next release. Mm -hmm. But what, what are you working on right now with them? Right now, we're just working on uh, supporting Curse to Gull. Okay. So we launched it uh, six months ago. No, sorry. Yeah, but yeah, about six months ago, last August, we launched it. So right now it's just working on some like quality of life updates and making sure it's the best game that it can be. <laughs> so this is a game that has legs on it. You're going to give it a, a long stream of support. Yeah, we're hoping to. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> when I saw the Curse to Golf, like, well, it's a fun concept. I'm just hoping mm -hmm. it becomes one of those games that, you know, people that comes uh one of those games that just kind of keeps going and going and you get a lot of support down the road. Yeah, yeah, because like, uh, it's such a like fun, unique idea. Like it's like, you know, it's a golf-like is what we call it. It's a rogue-like golf game that you go through like a bunch of dungeon-like holes and it's like really challenging, but you can be really creative with all of the like power-ups. So it has a lot of replayability and hopefully we can put a long tail on it just so it can keep going and we can keep supporting our players. I, I heard about it and I immediately wanted to put it in the same, same conversation as like Mutant League football and mm. Cold Combat basketball. It's like, <laughs> it's a sports game, but it's more of a spoof than the actual sport. Right, it's a sports game that's not a sports game. <laughs> and for somebody like me who like, I kind of like sports, but I want to do something a little different when I play a video game. Yep. That that's... Yeah, exactly. And like, it's so weird. There's something about golf games. I love golf games, mm -hmm. like Golf Story and like Neo Turf Masters. Like there's so many excellent golf games out there, but in real life, 
not so much. I'm not a no. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I, I like golf games too. Mm-hmm. But here's the catch is that almost all of them are roughly the same in terms of playability. It's mm, a physics yeah. puzzle, yep. which is not a bad thing, but it's really hard to put a different spit on that. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to put it in a dungeon and add some yeah, rockets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you already have a weapon, so add a little bit of that combat to it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who came up with this? Uh, it was it was all thought up by our director, Liam Edwards. So this is his his baby. And yeah, he came up with the whole idea. He's the lead designer, director, everything. Okay, fair enough. The, the visuals are adorable. And that to me is, is a big deal. It doesn't yeah. look cookie cutter. It doesn't look like something that just got rolled out of, of Unity. Yeah, we our, our our amazing artist, John Davies, he's wonderful. And he did all like all the art for us. And then our other artist, Nathan Scott, did all of the UI, and they just did like an amazing job. It looks so good. Do you play in your off hours? I do. Okay, that's <laughs> Especially the... when it first launched, because like mm-hmm. I did a lot of playtesting for it, because our team is really only like three people and then two contract artists. Like, And then and we also had our great narrative designer, of course, and our composer, but like in office, there was only three of us. And we we don't have like a QA department at Chuhai. There's only 15 of us there. And so, but golf was only three of us in office. So I was doing a lot of the QA testing. So I was playing it like nonstop before it came out. But then like the first time I played it almost as a fan and not as working, I was like, okay, this is great. I love this. What's it like working for a game studio in 2023 compared to the way we thought it was going to be when we were kids and dreaming of that amazing video game job? Man, that's a really good question. When I was a kid, it was weird. Like, I almost didn't even think video games could be a job. As as weird as that sounds, because obviously somebody was making them. Mm-hmm. But just in my wildest dreams, I never thought that I would ever be making games. And... I think making games is incredibly rewarding and it's a lot of fun, but it is a lot more work, I think, than people think. Like, it gives you a whole new perspective when you play games for fun. Like, for example, a lot of, whenever you put out a game and it's a single player game, the first thing a lot of people say or complain about is, oh, why doesn't this have multiplayer? And like, I used to think like that too. I'd be like, oh, well, that would be cool if we had multiplayer or whatever. But a lot of times on a single player game, making a multiplayer mode, it's just making a whole nother game. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so like almost twice the time and twice the budget. So it makes you think about it in a way different way when you play games. (laughs) Sure. And that honestly never made a whole lot of sense to me that you immediately Mm -hmm. say, why does this single player game have to be multiplayer? Because yeah, I play a lot of my games as single player yeah i do too actually yeah so i don't necessarily want you to add the multiplayer aspect i'm glad if you can Mm -hmm. if you can make it and make it work that's great but it's not an immediate ask yeah yeah and it's like surprise i guess it's not surprising but it's like the first thing most people ask for Like thinking of something like a metroid where the the whole Mm -hmm. thing is the exploration and the the problem solving 
I can't think of a way to just shoehorn it. And I know there have been multiplayer Metroids. It's it's done, been done, but why? Yeah, yeah. It, then it almost feels like, in, unless you go full into it, it can feel tacked on. Like, I guess, sort of, for example, even though I loved it, I just know most people didn't love it. The multiplayer in Donkey Kong 64, mm-hmm. it was pretty much just a GoldenEye ripoff. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. But a okay. lot of people thought it felt like really, it was just there to be multiplayer. <laughs> and that's totally fair. And Donkey Kong 64 is a very polarizing title. <laughs> yeah. It's it, actually the N64, now that I think about it, really does have a lot of those titles where it was like, you either really, really like this game for what it's supposed to be, or you just mm-hmm. think it's trash. Yep, and I think that they, because it was like one, the first console with four controller ports, they were just like, every game has to be multi, every game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the 64, I love it. Okay, that, that, that's a good thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, think my, my impression has softened a little bit as I've gone back to it. But what do you like about it more than anything else? I think it's driven on a lot of nostalgia for me because okay. like I did play like NES and Genesis. I didn't have a Super Nintendo as a kid. I was a Genesis kid. But like I played that a lot, but I was pretty young. And then like when the 64 came out, there was a brief period where I didn't really play games because when I was a kid, games were not like cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it like I was in junior high. I was the prime age to want to be cool. So I spent a while not playing any games and I like just rode my horse and did kid stuff. And then one day I came home from school and my little brother was trying to play Ocarina of Time and he couldn't beat Queen Goma because he was really young. And so I helped him beat it. And all of a sudden I was, I was back in like that Hyrule field pan. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I think I like games again. And then I got like deep into the 64. So I think a lot of it's nostalgia driven because to be fair, a lot of the graphics like don't age very well and it looks no. like pretty janky. <laughs> but you know, the 64 walked, you know, so the switch could run. Sure. <laughs> they had to switch to 3D eventually and it wasn't going to be pretty. It wasn't pretty. And a lot of the games <laughs> struggled with the transition yeah (laughs) that's the nicest way i can say and you can't fault them too much because it was their first go out yeah but what a lot of other people who are younger than us might not get is that the Mm -hmm. the n64 ps1 rivalry was a big deal at the time and it was yeah that that came down to what style of game you like if you if you were taken seriously by other people in the conversation and there were so many games that were on one system and not the other. And the, the whole concept in some cases was different. It wasn't just yeah. like, well, today where it's like, well, you have a, an Xbox and a S and a PS5 and it's basically the same game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I got the PlayStation 1 for Christmas and I got it like way after the 64 and I uh, that that was the day I abandoned the 64. <laughs> I discovered RPGs and I never looked back. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I remember really being into a lot of the quirky games on the N64 because it wasn't the choice I made because basically yeah. Zelda. Yeah, yeah. Like Chameleon Twist, mm-hmm. like like Iggy's Wrecking Balls. There's so many weird ass games on the 64 and I love it. <laughs> the one I want to ask you about is Mission mm-hmm. Impossible. 
Oh, yeah. Because I'm I'm actually a fan of that game and (laughs) nobody else is. (laughs) That's awesome. I can honestly say I don't remember if I've ever played it. I did have it in my collection. (laughs) It, it, I think the problem was everybody wanted a GoldenEye clone because it was based Mm -hmm. on a movie. It was about spies. That's, but no, it was a stealth game before stealth games were popular. Mm -hmm. It was N64's answer to Siphon Filter. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, and the controls were not great, but they also weren't bad by the standards of the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can I can already like think about a stealth game on the 64 being like close to impossible to play, but probably still pretty fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. It was one of those things that if you already knew the, the N64 controller and how it worked and its mm-hmm. little quirks, you weren't really going to have a problem. I love, you know, the 64 controller, like it's so divided on if people like it or not, but it's weird. The 64 controller is one of the few that I have like intense muscle memory for. Mm -hmm. Like trying to play something like Ocarina of Time on a different system. It just feels wrong because of how much I played it as a kid, like the Z targeting, everything. Like, I feel like I have to have a 64 controller for it. You do. (laughs) Yeah, it feels weird. I tried this <laughs> when they they brought out the Switch uh, N64 app, and mm-hmm. uh, they brought out all the games on that. I tried playing those games on the original Switch controller and on Switch Pro controller, and it does not work. Right? It's, you really it's need wrong. that special. So I went and got a USB <laughs> adapter for an N64 controller, and suddenly I was back. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the few systems that like. You have to have it like that. And like maybe arcade games maybe is a similar thing, mm-hmm. but for the most, yeah, you need it. It's like complete muscle memory for me. <laughs> and it, I like the controller as a, as a controller itself actually a lot. Mm-hmm. The only real problem is that it's a single analog controller and there are very few single analog games out there. You either yep. need duels or full D-pad. Yep. So it's this weird little oddity, but it's not the weirdness that you think it is. Yeah, yeah. And like when I was a kid, I didn't have a lot of friends who also played games. So I'm one of those unfortunate people who hold the controller, a 64 controller, 100% wrong. But I did wrong. it for so long that like I can't go back. <laughs> so you hold it on the sides, but you put your thumb on the joystick? Oh, it's worse than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish I had one handy to show you, but like, uh, instead of like putting my hand around that middle section and putting my thumb on the joystick, mm-hmm. I use my right hand for basically all the buttons because most games don't use the D-pad at all. Okay. So it's all the buttons and then including the Z button. And then this hand is like holding it like a arcade joystick. Okay. It's, it's so bad. Like whenever it... I use one now, like it's an automatic thing, but pe- people will be like, what are you do? What are you doing? <laughs> That's I I don't see that as being as weird as you probably think it is. <laughs> because are you talking about the original tall N sixty four joystick? Mm, yeah, like the okay. original sixty four like controller. Yeah, because like they have the replacements now that have a GameCube style one. It's like more oh, of a yeah. nub. Yeah, I can't imagine doing it with that. Oh no, that won't work. That would but feel the original weird. tall boy. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I didn't even think it was that weird until I did a 64 video with Metal Jesus. And he pointed it out because he was like, what you what you doing? 
<laughs> no, I, I, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, I don't yeah. do it, but it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> as I've come along, as I've you know, grown up a little bit, I've started to realize that controllers should be accessible and adaptable to different personal play styles and mm-hmm. you know, d- different abilities if need be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the, I haven't gotten to try one yet, but that Xbox adaptive controller looks Mm -hmm. so cool and you could use it in like so many different ways. And that's awesome. That is, that's the neat idea. I'm glad things are going in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And then less for accessibility, but more for weirdness. Like at GDC, there's a section called alt controller and it's just all games that are like controlled with something weird and it was my favorite section at gdc like there was like a a game where it's like a fishing pole but the game is that you're playing with a cat like a cat teaser Mm -hmm. and that's the controller and then there was a a bicycle like off-road game where they made this controller out of a huge bicycle tire so you're like huge wheel turning Mm. it and like it was all things like that and it was so cool i love that first really got my my Nintendo's control my Nintendo collection going in like mm-hmm. 95 96 I mm-hmm. heard about Street Cop that was a game that you played on the power pad with a mm-hmm. controller mm-hmm. and I said to myself well now bear in mind I'm like 16 mm-hmm. okay this is the logic I had I could make like a virtual reality NES game if I got a power pad with a power glove Ooh, yeah can you imagine how terrible that was? Yeah, right? But like as a kid in your head, you're like, this is the best idea I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't <laughs> anybody else thought of this? Because it sucks. That's why. Yeah. But I love weird controllers. Like I am a huge sucker for them. And in Japan, there's so many. Like, and because in Japan, they tried to market like the Famicom and in some cases the Super Famicom as something more than a game console. Like you could like do your taxes or check your stocks or bet on a horse race and so they have like full keyboard controllers and stuff for that Mm -hmm. and even though i will never use it for its intended purpose i just love that they exist and even like i got really into like pop and music and taiko drum master and all these things that just have like weird ass controllers and it just makes me so happy (laughs) i feel like japan is a little less they're they're a little less opposed to the idea of just buying hardware for the sake of buying hardware in the yeah. u.s we're like we don't want to spend a hundred bucks for this thing i'm going to use once and in japan it's like well if it makes it more fun sure why not yeah yeah especially back like in like kind of ps1 ps2 era like there was like an explosion of weird controllers and it was is amazing <laughs> we've had n64 controller that was like the glove yeah and like so many systems had like weird like keyboards or there's like a controller only for pachinko games and like yeah i bought this hudson controller uh one of my first times in japan and it was for pachinko and i was like what is what i don't even have a pachinko game but it's so weird and so cool but i had to get it i've seen that gamecube controller with the keyboard on it that i think was for Mm -hmm. fantasy star yeah it's like that should there every system should have something like that. Yeah, it's so cool. And like especially the keyboards. And nowadays with like having to enter your username like a million times, it's great. 
like I remember on the Xbox 360, they had the chat pad mm-hmm. that you could attach to your controller. And I just had that on my controller all the time. It was amazing. I'm sure they probably have those for the controllers nowadays, but they're I'm assuming they're probably more third party. I'm sure, but here's my thing with modern systems. Mm-hmm. They all have USB ports. Yeah, you can just use human them interface devices. <laughs> The, the the drivers to them are all universal. Why can't we just have basic USB keyboard support on every game? Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. I think it, you it, you can use it on like any of the menus and stuff will all, always work. Okay. But yeah, for the most part, I know like with PlayStation, I can just hook up a keyboard and it works just fine to like type in all my login information and whatnot. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But, you know, we've always had this argument that the keyboards and mice work better for first-person shooters, and if that's your preference, fine. Mm-hmm. But you've got the USB ports on there; just give people the option. Oh yeah, I wonder if that would work. I've never tried using a mouse on it. it maybe. I honestly, haven't either. <laughs> but it just seems like it's something that should be the case. And there's not a single system out there now that doesn't have USB ports on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm solving the problems of the world here. I mean, that's what we're all about. <laughs> But I wonder if there's some like PC Master Race thing where if you're using a keyboard and mouse on a like a PlayStation, just use your computer. <laughs> Somebody's going to say you're cheating. Right, right. So it's at that point, yeah. And <laughs> I'm sure the console makers are not wanting you cutting in on that sweet, sweet controller money. Right, because controllers are crazy expensive nowadays, I feel like. Oh my God, how? I remember when you can get an NES pad for like 15 bucks. Yeah, I actually went to go buy a uh, pro controller the other day, and I know like the yen is really weak right now, so sometimes numbers look way too big to me. But like a a pro controller, like just retail, is like ten thousand yen, which is if it's like one to one, a hundred dollars. And I'm like, what? Why? I mean, with the yen the way it is, it's more like seventy, which is about right for the MS like. RP on a pro controller yeah. but still I'm just like oh like my eyes are dollar signs like oh crap <laughs> I'll wait till I find one at Hardwell <laughs> like the one time it actually made sense was when you had that the, the the Wii U controller that actually had like a half a system crammed into it right yeah and that, that makes didn't sense. fly too well I loved it personally but it wasn't you know did too hit for the room yeah I god I love the Wii U so much and I never understood why they didn't make like a DS emulator because it would be perfect. It'd be so good. It's basically a home DS. <laughs> it, yeah. It's awesome. It, it was the idea that you could have information that only one person had on one screen. It seems like it should be a, have been, been a bigger deal. Yeah, I think it just wasn't supported, especially by like third-party developers. Just there wasn't the library, there wasn't the support even though it was such a cool idea and even playing like Mario Party on there which is arguably not a great Mario Party but if you if you had the pad you could play as Bowser mm-hmm. and like you could see things the other people couldn't see and like it was just so smartly designed and so many other games could have taken advantage of that and that's where Mario Maker got its start yeah. and there would have been such an advantage to having one person who's designing the level throw in stuff as the other people were playing yeah yeah they like would like touch on that in some games like i'm trying to remember what game it was but basically it was a one player game but they added like the second player could be like a fairy and you could like drop stuff in and so many things they were so close they're so close like the idea was there 
or like in like WarioWare and Nintendo Land, like using it basically as a camera. Mm -hmm. I was like, you're so close. You're so close. Where's Pokemon Snap? Like, <laughs> you're, you're right there. <laughs> but nope, just moved on to the Switch. Yep. And the Switch is probably my favorite system ever after yeah. finally beating out the Super Nintendo. It was a long fight, but yeah. the Switch is one out. <laughs> oh, the Switch is so, so good. And like, I'm not a really big like graphics 4K 120 hertz person. So that part doesn't bother me about the Switch. I know it bothers a lot of people, but like that OLED model, it's like so beautiful. It's fine that it's not 4K. It's so wonderful. I wish I had one. And I didn't even think I need to upgrade until we got the dev kit and the dev kit's an OLED and I played with it and I was like, oh no, oh no, I think I need to upgrade. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the the idea that one system can have something from almost every console ever made on it in some way, shape, or form mm -hmm. blows my mind. I'm like, I can put Xbox games on my Nintendo? What wizardry is this? Yeah, it's so good. It, I love the Switch so much. And I'm playing the new Zelda right now, and that's like basically my whole life at the moment. <laughs> I still haven't gotten through Breath of the Wild. Mm -hmm. it, oh, so good. I, I love it but it is so different and I'm trying to appreciate the difference rather than rush through it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's I, amazing. I, for so long, I got into this thing where it's like, I, I just played through Zelda games. I went through the motions. I found all the dungeons. I got the stuff I finished. And this gives me a chance to not do that. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much more exploration and there's so much to see. So taking your time and taking it all in is definitely the best way to play either one of those games. You were talking about when you got into the N64 or even when you found the original NES, it's like you have that chance to appreciate it for the first time. You very mm -hmm. rarely get that these days as an adult. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I think Zelda really has those feelings again. And it's been a while since I had that about a game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I feel bad for Nintendo in some ways because they know they have to be very careful with their crown jewels Yes. But they also have to keep it fresh, and that's a very tough position to be in. Yeah, and I think uh, with Tears of the Kingdom, they definitely nailed it. Because they added, like, crafty and more, like, almost Minecrafty and Fortnite elements with all of the, like, crafting and how creative you can be with the builds. So it keeps it really new and in in interesting, especially for, like, the younger generation, because I feel like they're way more into like Minecraft and like Minecraft came out and I never cared because I was mm -hmm. older and but I think this is like a perfect meld for like a big awesome Zelda adventure but it still has that like kind of Minecrafty Fortnite elements to keep like people of all ages wanting to play sure and not only can you build stuff you can set it on fire which is also always fun <laughs> Yeah, you could just like attach a rocket to a Korok and wish him luck. <laughs> it's, it's like I, I haven't played it, but I, I'm seeing the videos, and every time that happens, I like I have this Beavis in the back of my head saying "fire, fire." Right? Yeah. There's so many things. I'll like get it all together, and I'm like, "This is gonna be awesome." And then I like hit on, and just chaos ensues, and it's not what I planned. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm having such a blast with it. This is why <laughs> physics and games is a good thing. Yeah. And I saw this article actually on Tears of the Kingdom where someone interviewed a physicist 
and they were talking about how the physics are actually really good and like real life because some of the stuff that happens you're like what the hell like all of a sudden it twisted it in a way that I did not think it was gonna go and this is all weird but apparently it's really good according to a physicist and it's cool that that interview even happened yeah <laughs> I've had a couple academics on the show in the past. Mm -hmm. I love having academics on there because to actually yeah. have qualifications on the bullshit we're discussing here, right? It always <laughs> adds a little bit. Of, but but here's the thing: it's like when you find when you sit down and you ask them something like this, they have a lot of fun. Oh, they, I bet. Mm -hmm. It's so cool to get them out of the classroom, get them out of the lab, wherever they happen to be, and mm -hmm. and and just ask them. So can we talk about lightsabers? And their eyes just like pop. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because actually, as random as it is, my like what I went to school for and everything is all in science. So I love that kind of shit so much. Like I, I went to school for uh, environmental science and then I worked in like a soils, rock and asphalt lab for like almost 10 years before I did games. So I, I love it when people bring like real science into it and especially when it's like fun, real science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to send you some links when we're off mic here. Oh, perfect. I want to thank you so much for doing this. I am having the best time here. I would love to have you back anytime for sure. Yeah, anytime. This was a blast. But where can people follow your adventures on the web and where can I put everything in the show notes? Mm -hmm. uh, you can follow me at Kinzilla, K-I-N-S-Z-I-L-L-A on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all the things. I mostly just post on Instagram and Twitter. My YouTube channel has been a little bit dormant, but I'm hoping I'm going to have time to bring it back. We'll see. <laughs> Everything's going to be in the show notes on my website, AaronBossy.com. Kinsey, thank you so much for doing here, doing this, and I hope you have you back. Thank you. I would like to thank Kinsey for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. As I said at the beginning of the episode, this show is all about how we use our love of fandom to make our lives better. And that can be something as simple as trying something new each day, or it can be something as life-changing as moving all the way across the planet or anywhere in between. I would like to know if you've had something happen in your life that's changed you that's changed you as a result of something you like in terms of gaming, music, movies, comics, whatever, reach out to me at bossigpodcast at yahoo.com or follow me at Aaron Bossig on Twitter or Instagram. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.